speaking in tongues. Last Sunday, we studied the problem in the Corinthian church in which women, as believers, were praying and preaching in the congregation, which is fine with Paul, but they were doing it with their heads uncovered. And while we do not understand the exact nature of what this means, having their heads uncovered, they understood what Paul was writing about. And what they were doing was contrary to the customs of their culture. And by going against the culture, going against the customs of uh, Corinth, they were blurring the distinctions between men and women, which they intended to do. It reflected their view of the resurrection. The resurrection had already happened. And in heaven there will be no gender, there will be no marriage, we will be like the angels. And so they were trying to reflect that by women, in essence, looking like men or dressing like men in public worship. Paul shows, and we saw this last week, that the distinction between male and female is not merely a cultural construction, as postmodernists would argue today, but it is in fact a part of the created order. He points to the issue of origin, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He points to the issue of glory, that man is the image and glory of God, woman is the glory of man, that is, the existence of each brings glory and honor to the other. And yet there is an interdependence, there is not independence, that woman comes from man, but man also comes from woman. But everything comes from God, and so we are all under uh, the authority, God is the creator, God is his sustainer. But for all the points that Paul makes, and we looked at them last week, I see it as boiling down to this, at least in terms of modern application. Christians don't have to be weird. Okay? That is, Paul makes a real case for living within the culture, rather than seeking to violate the culture, um, and embracing, if you wish, shame, disgrace, dishonor, you know, and forgetting about propriety. Um, these are cultural issues, and for Paul, they are important cultural issues. They're important matters. Now, while it is true that Christians may be said to be a people who have a counter-community, the church, they have a counter-value system, biblical principles, they have a counter-rationale, that is, vocation and calling, if we're not careful, we may begin to think of ourselves only in terms of being counter, or being anti, or being against. Um, by the way, counter doesn't mean against, it doesn't mean anti. Unfortunately, many Christians define themselves as Christians as those who are against certain things within the culture. That is, to be a Christian, in their way of thinking, means to be someone who does not do certain things. And many of those things, if you wish, belong to a given culture. So that, for example, if someone were to say, and this is how I was raised, Christians are people who don't go to movies. Well, what do you do about all the Christians who lived before movies came along? So you're defining yourself by one narrow aspect of the culture and saying this is what it means to be a Christian. By the way, that's a totally fallacious thing. I just make that clear. But how can you say a Christian is someone who is against the culture by definition when Paul said in chapter 9 to the Jews, to the Jews I became like a Jew. To those under the law I became like one under the law. 
to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I mean, Paul seems very clear about his place in the world. That he lives within a given culture. And yet, in case you know, alarms are going off in your head and you're thinking, or that I'm saying, or that Paul is saying, that we should do whatever the culture does, that that's okay. Paul ends this particular section, if you look at verse number 16 in 1 Corinthians 11, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. That is, we do have a counter-community, the church, to whom we are to have a real sense of belonging. And so we are not to blindly go against the prevailing culture to say that somehow that that's what it means to be a Christian. And neither, neither are we to thoughtlessly go against the practice of the churches of God. We need to know who we are as the people of God. Hopefully that will become clear in the passage that we will look at today. Today we come to the second abuse that Paul deals with, the second abuse in public worship, and that is the abuse of the Lord's Supper. There are several things that we need to say even before we jump into this passage. First of all, this is not something that they wrote to Paul about. In verse number 18, he says that he has heard about this, and to some extent he believes what he has heard. Um, He's not simply responding to what they wrote about. The people who brought him the letter, we think, also gave sort of an oral report of what was going on. And Paul says, uh, you know, I've heard about this, and and I believe that what they're saying is true. I, I find it interesting that he says, to some extent... Because he wants to make it clear that he's not on one side or the other. That those who have given the report also have an axe to grind. They have, if you wish, an interest in what is going on. Paul says, I'm I'm pretty sure that what they've told me is correct. Secondly, the problem that Paul writes about is something that he and the Corinthians know about. The issue is not as clear for us today. The nature of the specific abuse is not clear. Remember, we're listening to a dialogue, but we're only hearing one side of the conversation. It does seem that the problem fell along economic lines, socioeconomic lines. That is, the rich in the congregation were abusing, if we could use that word, the poor in the congregation, in that they were excluding them from certain aspects of worship, that is, the common meal, which we will look at in a bit. Interestingly enough, Paul is not saying, okay, you rich, you need to share with what, what you have with the poor. We need to all be equal. In fact, he tells them, you know, don't you have homes to eat in? You know, go home and eat. He doesn't say share what you have. He just says, go to your individual homes to eat. What Paul is not against are social or economic distinctions in the church. What he is opposed to is those distinctions coming into public worship and to somehow disrupt the Lord's Supper, which is what has happened. I think it's also important for us to acknowledge that we do not know the exact nature of public worship in the early church. We do know that they had prayer, that they had singing of hymns as well as psalms, the reading of scripture, they had preaching, they had the Lord's Supper, but the order of things, how they did these things, um, we really are not clear about. We do know that the early church met in the homes of members. They did not have church buildings as such as we have today. It would seem that if this were the case, they were meeting in the homes of those who were wealthier, those who had the larger homes, so that the congregation could fit within the homes. The owner of the home was probably the host, 
We see this in Paul's writings in Romans 16, when he talks about the various people who have churches meeting in their homes. Archaeology has shown us that, for the most part, the dining room where you would eat was not nearly large enough for the congregation. And so we're sort of working with what we have archaeologically and historically with this passage. We think this is what happened, and we'll see it in a bit. Since you can't fit everybody into the dining room, the host, the owner of the house, would bring those who were like himself, wealthy, into the dining room, and then everybody else got to stay out in the courtyard, in the atrium. In, in modern terms, particularly as we come up on Thanksgiving, they had to eat at the kids' table. Okay? They didn't get to be at the big table, at the adult table, they had to eat at the kids' table. And as a result, this, the economic lines are very clearly drawn. These are the rich folk over here, and everybody else is out in the courtyard. And they are not apparently allowed to participate in this potluck or this meal that is going on. They are allowed to participate in communion, but Paul says that that is not sufficient. Having said all this, we must understand that what we know is not complete, but when Paul wrote this, he knew what he was talking about. The Corinthians knew what he was talking about. Let's see, by God's grace, if we can understand and apply it to our lives. First of all, the problem. Verses 17 through 22. Follow along, if you would, as I read. In the following directives, and directives, by the way, we could also say commands, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Paul begins by letting the Corinthians know he knows he's fully aware of what is going on. In verse 2, he praised them for holding to the traditions. Here in verse 17, he says, I have no praise for you. And he makes an astounding statement. Your meetings or your coming together do more harm than good. This is an astounding statement. Paul is saying that their public worship actually did more harm than good. It's a really abiding indictment against their practices. A key word in this section, verses 17 to 22, is in Greek one word. It occurs five times. It is to gather together. And Paul is focusing on their coming together as a church. They're coming together for the purpose of worship. Their problem is not that they're not meeting together. They are doing that. It is the abuses that occur when they do come together. One we've already looked at last week, women uh, trying to appear as men. Here we have the second abuse, the divisions along social economic lines. Verse number 19, actually I think verses 19 and 29, both are key to understanding this passage. Um, there are a number of ways to take verse number 19, but I see Paul as being really sarcastic. 
if you read it, I think he's being really ironic. It's, well, of course there have to be differences so that people will know, you know who God is favoring. In other words, the rich people could claim that they were recipients of God's favor more than the poor, and, and therefore it, it only seemed right and proper that they sort of be set aside as those whom God had prospered financially. In chapter 8, Paul talked about divisions. The divisions between the strong and the weak. Those who were weak had weaker consciences, and those who were strong were just sort of going on their own way and forgetting those who needed help. I think what Paul has been trying to say all along in 1 Corinthians, and he is here as well, is that the Corinthians are guilty of thinking in terms of the individual rather than in terms of the congregation. And because of their individualistic thinking, these abuses have allowed to take place. What is it that they are doing? The harm that they are doing that does more harm than it does good? It has to do with the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. That is, as they met together, so they are meeting together, they were actually having the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. That thing that you're doing, that's actually not the Lord's Supper. You are abusing this tradition that has been passed down to you. And notice the individualistic tone of it. Each of you, so it's each individual, goes ahead, not waiting for someone else, without waiting for anybody else. That their whole approach to having the Lord's Supper was highly individualistic. As best we can tell uh, from the book of Acts and other historical sources, it appears that the practice in the early church, among many of the churches, was that, that when they met together, they would actually have a meal. And it was part of the worship. And at the end of the meal, they would have the Lord's Supper. And it is very possible that the singing, the praying, the reading of scripture, the preaching, happened around food. That would not be as strange as it seems to us, because in pagan religions, the, the, the uh, cultic meal was part of worship. In the Old Testament, people would eat at the tabernacle in the presence of God. But apparently, not everyone is allowed to participate in the communal meal. A bunch of them are out in the atrium, at the kids' table. They're not getting to eat, and... And one would almost suspect that they're not actually getting to participate in worship. They might hear some of the singing. They might be able to sort of sing on their own. They've been isolated from those who are economically well off. And Paul says, what, you don't have homes to eat in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The problem was those who were wealthy were thinking of themselves they weren't thinking of those who did not have. They weren't sharing with them. They were not worshiping with them. They were doing things quite individually. One thing I want to point out, and Paul says here, uh, one remains hungry and another gets drunk. And some people have suggested that at communion there were actually Corinthians who were, who were getting a bit tipsy. I don't think that Paul is saying that. I think what he's saying is... Um, you have a contrast between someone who's getting nothing and someone who's getting too much. And because of the individualistic uh, thinking of the Corinthian church, this is what was happening. 
So how do you deal with this problem? Well, first of all, Paul presents the historic tradition. Look, if you would, at verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a passage that we read when we have communion together. Here, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the tradition, one that they are not keeping, one that they are profaning by their practices. Just a side note here, if you've been with us in Corinthians, you notice that Paul does the ABA thing, that he attacks the issue, and then he brings supporting material, and then he comes back to the issue. I would argue that this is the B section, even though it is very closely related to what is going on. He brings up the tradition to support his case. Paul's version of what Jesus said during the Last Supper is in line with the Lucan tradition and is somewhat different from that of Matthew and Mark. Um, And I won't go into that. I would simply say that Paul brings up the tradition at this point to make a point, and that is that they are going contrary to the original intent. When Jesus did the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, he was thinking along a particular line, and what the Corinthians are doing is almost 180 degrees away from it. What the Corinthians are doing, Paul would argue, is failing to remember the Lord as they should, and they are failing to proclaim the Lord's death as they should. Now, let's talk about remembrance, because I think it is the key to this passage. Um, It's something that Paul and Luke focus on more than Matthew and Mark. Remembering in the Bible is much, much more than a mental activity. If you read the Old Testament, you will see, for example, that God remembers his people and visits them. And it's somewhat strange because we wouldn't even associate remembering with God. I mean, God knows everything, so he can't forget. So why does he remember? Well, it's the idea of activity, that God thought of his people and did something about it. Israel is told to remember time and time again. And in some cases, they are to construct a memorial. And other t- at other times, they are to reenact a particular ritual such as Passover. The remembrance here is of the salvation which the Lord Jesus has provided. They are to remember what Jesus has done and what he has provided. And what is it that he has provided? A salvation that makes them all one. This is what the Corinthians have forgotten. So, what is the answer? Paul now speaks further in verses 27 through 32. Therefore, so you know he's drawing conclusions, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined 
so that we will not be condemned with the world. Paul now applies the tradition to their worship. That's why he starts out with therefore. What they are doing is dishonoring. They are abusing the Lord himself by failing to remember him. So Paul makes these points. First of all, he warns them against eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Because if you do that, you're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Secondly, the remedy is to examine oneself before eating and drinking. Thirdly, he gives a second warning against eating and drinking without recognizing the body of the Lord. If you do that, you bring judgment on yourself. Verse 4 is a very powerful prophetic statement, a pronouncement, that some are sick in the Corinthian church and some have died because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. It's a powerful statement. And then verse 5, a call to self-judgment, to, to avoid divine judgment. Divine judgment, by the way, is, has a disciplinary, it has a therapeutic purpose, but better to judge ourselves. So it all seems pretty straightforward. But I think there are some questions that we must answer to fully understand what Paul is saying here. What does Paul mean when he talks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? Well, I would argue that what Paul is not saying is that they are drinking in a way that is unworthy, but rather conduct which is unworthy of the table where the Lord's death is proclaimed. See, as he writes of their conduct, his focus is not, oh, you guys are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, okay? But rather their conduct in eating and drinking is unworthy of the table. The Lord's Supper has a very specific message. And so when they eat and drink, it has to be with that message in mind. Now, what that message is, I will tell you in a bit. But that is what they are doing in an unworthy way. Second question how does one sin against the body and blood of the Lord? Now, Paul mentions here the two elements of the Lord's Supper. But what he means seems, I think, less than clear. Most take it to mean desecrating or profaning the Lord. Uh, but I think it seems more likely that Paul is saying you are sinning against the message of the meal. The message that they are to remember, the message that they are to proclaim, they have in fact forgotten. And they are not proclaiming that message. Thirdly, how does one examine himself or herself? And here, I, along with other things, I think people miss what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that, as many think, that there should be deep personal introspection to determine, am I worthy to eat and drink communion on this day? Okay. Let me just tell you gently and kindly, no one is worthy. Okay? And so, if when we have communion, you sit there and you're thinking, man, am I worthy? Am I worthy? No. Okay? You're not. Okay? So, Paul is not saying you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you are worthy. Rather, he wants us to consider our attitude as we come to the Lord's Supper and our behavior toward others as we come to the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians are saying we are God's people. 
But when it comes to communion, they're doing something that says quite the opposite. Fourthly, what does Paul mean when he says, without recognizing the body of the Lord? This is in verse 29. To me, this is the key to the whole passage. I think if you miss verse 29, then you miss the problem, you miss the abuse, you miss what Paul is trying to correct. For some, they see this as a failure to recognize that what we have at communion is different. It is holy, it is not common. And therefore, the Corinthians are acting like, oh, you know, the bread and the wine, that's, yeah, that's just bread and wine, that, you know, that's the cup, that's the bread, that's, it's not anything important. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you need to see this as special. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Others would say it is a failure to recognize and reflect on the death of Jesus. I don't think that's what he's saying either. Because if you look at verse 29, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, eats and drinks, eats and drinks. But what is it that they are to recognize? The body. Not the body and the blood, but the body. Paul has already prepared us for this, and that's why it's important to study verse by verse and go to the, see the flow of the passage. In chapter 9, verse number 17, Paul has already told us, we who are many are one body. A failure to recognize the body of the Lord is a failure to understand the nature of the meal, what it tells us about the church. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. It is the meal which tells us the gospel. And what does it tell us? The cup tells us that we have union with Christ. We are one with Christ. The bread tells us that we are one with each other. We are the body of Christ. And what the Corinthians were doing by dividing the congregation was failing to proclaim the message of the gospel that we who come from different backgrounds, different families, different nationalities, all the differences we have, in Christ we are one. And by failing to recognize the body of the Lord, the many who are one, they had missed the gospel entirely. This is the abuse of the Lord's Supper. This is the coming together and having communion but, and saying, well, I'm remembering. I'm proclaiming. Well, you know, your actions are speaking so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Their actions were saying the very exact opposite of what communion was intended to say. What about the judgment that Paul talks about uh, in verse number 30. And as I said, this is a prophetic pronouncement. I think this is something given to him only by the Spirit of God. Paul isn't being cavalier. He isn't being lighthearted or uh, sort of being trivial about illness. I think only direct revelation from God can tell you that a sickness or death is a result of judgment. That's not something I feel, well, I don't make that pronouncement. I've not been given that insight. But Paul has. And, and the Spirit has revealed to Paul, you know what, Paul, there are people in the Corinthian church who are sick. Some are weak. Some have died because of this abuse of the Lord's Supper. 
So it's not a small matter to abuse the Lord's Supper. Now the question is, is the judgment that has come a one-for-one kind? That is to say, if I was back in the Corinthian church and I was one of those rich people who was sort of putting the people outside, the poor people, would I be the one who would be suffering sickness or weakness or even death itself? Paul doesn't tell us. But I think if we understand what he's saying in this passage, the answer would be no. Because we are altogether God's people. And so, as a congregation, somebody else may do something that they should not do. And I may, in fact, experience the judgment of God for what somebody else has done. We see this throughout Scripture, the story of Achan, who stole from Jericho. And what happens? Israel goes into battle, and they are defeated because of his sin. Now, ultimately, he paid the penalty for his sin, but others suffered for what he had done. I think Paul would say, if, if he were here today, that what he was saying is there are people in the Corinthian church who are suffering. Some have even died because of the sins, not their own sins, but because of the sins of the congregation and abusing the Lord's Supper. When we get to chapter 12, interestingly enough, Paul will at length talk about the fact that we are the body of Christ. We are one body. We're baptized into one body. I mean, he will just hammer that home again and again. It would be very strange for us at this point then to think that, oh, you did something wrong, so you get judged. You did something wrong, so you get judged. We are God's people. We are the body of Christ. When one suffers, we all suffer. Paul will tell us in chapter 12. Let me just digress a bit and talk about the Lord's Supper in general. I think it's somewhat unfortunate that many people have misunderstood this particular passage. They're so fearful when they come to the Lord's Supper that somehow they might eat or drink unworthily and then they might become sick or even die. That somehow there might be unconfessed sin in a person's life that one might not have enough faith. I do think it is appropriate that when we have communion, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we do so soberly, not lightly. But I think it is unfortunate, as I said earlier, because no one is in fact worthy. And Paul's point is not to say you need to be worthy, but rather you need to recognize the truth of communion that we are the body of the Lord. It is unfortunate because communion is to be a time of rejoicing when we remember what Christ has done, and we proclaim we are one because of Christ's death. Paul tells the Corinthians that they need to judge themselves, they need to examine and judge themselves, make the necessary corrections. And, and how is it that they examine themselves? Again, oftentimes this is misunderstood as someone just needs to sort of go through a catalog list of all the things that they have done as to see whether or not they are worthy. No. Paul says you need, to you need to judge yourself. You're about to have communion. You're about to say, because of the death of Christ, this person is my brother. This person is my sister. We are one in Christ. Are you acting like it? Are you, in fact, acting very individualistically? He says it's better to judge yourself than to experience divine judgment. But even if God judges you, 
as he has those who are sick and those who have died, his judgment is therapeutic. You don't need to worry about those who have died. They've not lost their salvation. And then verses 34 and 30, uh, 33 and 34, his closing thoughts. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Notice again that Paul calls them brothers. It's entirely appropriate. They are part of the body of Christ. So he should call them brothers. His advice is very straightforward. Wait for each other. That is, do communion together. Don't do it individually. Because if you do it by yourself, you fail to understand the message that we are one. And you know what? If you're hungry, eat at home before you come to church. Okay? Don't come to church to get full. Just go ahead and eat. And when you come to church, then you can have communion together. Um, because some people may not have food to eat and, and you don't want to humiliate them by eating in front of them. And then he says this intriguing thing, and when I come, I will give further directions. The instructions we don't know the nature of, but wouldn't you like to be there to know what else Paul would have to say to this Corinthian church about what they were doing with regard to communion? Let's tie this up and apply it to ourselves. In our time, the message of the gospel has been individualized. And in that respect, we are much like the Corinthians. I think we often fail to appreciate and to understand the reality. We are the body of Christ. We may fail to appreciate the implications of this truth. As a result of misunderstanding this passage, we may fear participating in the Lord's Supper because of personal sins. And personal sins must be dealt with. I'm not saying they're insignificant. And yet we fail to understand the importance of the congregation. That is, as we hold the bread and the cup, we may be thinking, okay, is there anything in me, anything in me, anything in me that I need to get rid of, instead of saying, I'm part of the people of God. I'm a part of the congregation. The church is the body of Christ. See, what defines us as God's people is not what we don't do, but the reality that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we are the body of the Lord. We are not to be defined by what we don't do or how we stand against the culture. God has put us here at this place at this time. We dress accordingly. We don't dress like we live in the 1800s, the 1500s. We dress as people who live in this culture. We don't speak to each other in some foreign language, in medieval English, in old English. We speak American English. This is where we live. This is where God has put us. In my life, it's been tragic when I think back. There have been so many people 
who have rejected the Christian message because, as they understood it, to become a Christian required that one become rather weird. And many Christians, in fact, sort of revel in the fact that they are weird and bizarre. I think Paul would say, you're just being weird. You're not being Christ-like. If we went back in time to the time of Paul, would we be able to pick out the Corinthian believers in Corinthian society? I don't think so. If we could go back to the time of Jesus, would we be able to pick him out of a crowd? Now, there's no halos, no glowing face. No, he's just like everybody else. He spoke the language that everybody else spoke. I think as God's people, we need to embrace where we are and we need to embrace one another. That we are God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a culture that practically worships the individual, individual uh, worships that which is unique. We all want to be different, we want to be special. And as your people, we need to embrace one another, to acknowledge that we are your people, we are the body of the Lord. In our worship, we are not to act as individuals, but as a congregation. In our actions, we need to understand that the results of our actions may in fact fall on somebody else in the congregation. Not simply on myself. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And for the message that it tells us. The message we are to remember. The message we are to proclaim. And by your grace may we do that. Pray that in the days to come we would think about the things we've heard this day. Now I ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand please as we sing the doxology together. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.